Good morning, everybody. Keep your Bible open to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. You know, sometimes uh, when we think about the Christian life, we realize very quickly that the Christian life can be hard. And a word of encouragement and a reminder is the thing that we need to keep us going. And that's what we see in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, particularly the end section here. And Paul is giving the Christians of Macedonia and giving you today a word of encouragement. But this type of encouragement is not the encouragement of the superficial sort. He's not saying simply, we really like you, so keep going. Or, you look great today, so press on. He's giving encouragement of the most substantive things that lead to some of the most or some of the greatest resolve for life. And he begins this encouragement in verse 13 by referring to them and thanking God for them in a very specific way. He says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you. Brothers beloved by the Lord. He calls them beloved by the Lord. This is the second prayer of thanksgiving that we see in this book of 2 Thessalonians. You might remember the first. It's way back at the very beginning of the book. And it sounds very similar at the beginning. But has some differences at the end. The first one is found in chapter 1 verse 3. Look back there with me. It says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers. Exact same language. As is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So at the beginning, he praises God for them because there is evidence that they are growing in faith. And here, after he's addressing some very difficult things, he calls them beloved of the Lord. The foundation for this encouragement The foundation for what he's about to tell them is a relational foundation. It's God's love particularly applied to them. Now, there's a couple of different ways in which the Bible talks about God's love. There's the sort of general sense of God loving the world that he created and and this type of love is what motivates him to give what we would call common grace, the type of grace that's applied to all people uh, regardless of their standing before him. But I don't think that's the type of love he's talking about here. Here, when he calls them beloved of the Lord, he's talking of a very particular type of love. This is the type of love that God extends to those who he saves. They are his children. Think about it this way. I love all of the children of our church. (laughs) God has given us hundreds of little people running around this place week in and week out, year in and year out. And I can honestly say, man, I love those kids. But I love my two daughters and my son differently than I love all of the kids of this church family. 
when God calls Christians beloved, there's a relational foundation that he is, that he is recalling their mind to, and it's a particular special type of love that motivates these actions. It's important for them to know this, because as you might remember from last week's text and earlier in this chapter too, the goal of, of comforting them, of helping them to steady, to stand firm, and to embolden them is in the midst of some very particular realities that can be scary. Early in chapter 2, he recognizes that Christians are experiencing a great amount of affliction during their time. And some of this affliction is coming from persecution, and others is coming from false teaching that says that the day of the Lord has already occurred, and he goes on to tell them this can't happen until many people are deceived by the Antichrist. And he finishes that section in verses 11 and 12. He says that God is going to send the people who hate the truth, he's going to send them a strong delusion so that they'll continue to be entrenched in what is false. And so when you take a big step back, you say, there's a lot of things going on right now. And almost none of it is comforting in its nature. Antichrists, delusions, deceptions, persecution, life is incredibly difficult. And the prospects might feel to us to be entirely grim. And he reminds them, in the midst of affliction, in the midst of antichrists, in the midst of deception, you are beloved of God. And if you're listening today, and you've put your faith in Jesus, no matter what you're experiencing right now, no matter how difficult or easy your life might be, no matter how many times you've sinned again, no matter how uncertain the days ahead might look, take heart in this relational foundation. You are beloved of God. And because you are, because these Macedonian Christians were, he tells them to stand firm and to hold fast. Look at verse 15 with me. He says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by spoken word or by our letter. Stand firm and hold fast to the traditions they were taught. He's telling them to stand firm to the, and hold fast, hold fast to the truths of God that they were taught in the gospel of Jesus. And then he gives them some, some specific things to hold fast to. In 2019, National Geographic released a documentary called Free Solo. I wonder if you've seen it. It's absolutely fascinating. Free Solo is about a mountain climber, a rock climber, named Alex Hammond, and his quest to climb the rock face, El Capitan, in California's Yosemite National Park on a free solo climb, which is 
a 3,000-foot climb all by himself without a rope. Now, I'm not sure why anybody would want to do that on purpose. But nevertheless, the film continues and it shows how Alex Hammond is vigilant in his preparation, how his desire for this free solo is intense, how his training and his resolve shine through again and again. And all of those things are impressive. But there are so many variables for harm that can happen when you are on the side of a mountain. Fatigue can set into your muscles. And that can cause you to fall to your death. High winds could throw you off the side of the mountain. And how you stand and what you hold on to can make all of the difference. I mean, undoubtedly, there's a point on this climb when moving from place to place or hold to hold where things become tenuous. A long reach, a difficult position, a gust of wind, and the need for a firm standing underneath your feet and hands held tightly into the cleft of the rock. If he doesn't stand firm and if he doesn't hold fast, he is sucked off the side of the mountain to his death. When Paul tells the Thessalonians... And when he tells you to stand firm and to hold fast to the traditions you were taught in the gospel, he is telling them to hold on to these things, these God-driven gospel truths with the type of intensity of that consequence. So many of us go through life and we think very casually about the truths of God or how the gospel relates to us. We might hold them loosely in light of what we think or what we feel or what we experience on a day in and day out basis. But if you hold loosely to them, Paul says, you will be sucked off the side of the mountain to your death. And not only sucked off the side of the mountain to your death, but sucked off the side of the mountain all the way to hell. So hold fast. Get a firm footing underneath your feet. What he is talking about is of the utmost seriousness and urgency for your life. And so when he tells them to stand firm and to hold fast, he's telling them to hold on as tightly as as you can to these things. And so in the midst of this situation, what are they supposed to hold on to? Well, he gives them a number of things. Look at verse 13 with me. He says one of the things that they are to hold on to is found in the fact that they are beloved by the Lord because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through the Spirit. God's election of Christians is a wonderful truth to hold on to. 
It's a truth that's woven throughout the Bible. It's a truth that's hard for many of us to grasp or to understand. But the fact that the saving work of God is initiated not by us, but initiated by God even before the foundation of the world is something of great comfort. That you won't be deceived. That you won't be undone. That the difficulty in your life will not be the ultimate end of you. That the midst of affliction will not, um, will not pull you away. That antichrists will not deceive you. Because God doesn't choose his children only to unchoose them later. God doesn't change his mind on such things. He expresses a particular type of love to them. And so at this point, I know that many are going to ask, well, if God is the one who is initiating a relationship with us, if God is the one that's choosing us, then how do you know if you're chosen? How can we look at somebody and say they may or may not be chosen by God? Well, I think 1 Thessalonians, the previous book, the previous letter to this group, gives us enough of an answer that we need to know. He says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, he says this. We know, brothers, loved by God. Sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because, how do we know? How do we know that God chose them? The Christians in Macedonia, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. How do you know if someone, these Macedonian Christians, are chosen by God? What is the evidence? The evidence is that when the gospel was preached to them, they received it with great joy and with great repentance. Their response to the gospel, to the truth of God, was evidence of God's electing work in them. When a person hears the gospel, and they receive it, when they see the grace of God, and they embrace it, when they are confronted with their sin, and they grieve it, and repent from it and are convicted by it, when they think about their eternal hope, and the only place that they can place that eternal hope is in the work of Jesus on the cross, then you know that God's electing work is applied to that person. Because without that, you wouldn't be able to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior. Praise God. That he is so gracious and generous and loving that he breaks down the objections of my mind, <laughs> the barriers of my heart, the blinders of my eyes, so that I can embrace the gospel. Hold on to God's electing purpose, because it will see you through questionable times. The second thing that he points them to hold on to is the reality that this salvation comes through sanctification. Look at verse 13 again. 
He says, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification and by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now, sanctification is very simply the process uh, that happens in your life from the day that you put your faith in Jesus, the day of your conversion, all the way until the day of your death or the return of Christ, whichever one comes first. And during that time, God is making you more holy. I hope you desire to become more holy. We could talk a lot about that desire But this sanctification process is one of God's greatest gifts to you. And we know that the Bible speaks that we are saved particularly by grace through faith. And so it's interesting here that he talks about being saved through sanctification. I mean, the book of Ephesians, the book of Galatians, again and again, you're saved by faith in Jesus, by the grace of God. So what does it mean that we are saved through sanctification. Well, I think part of the way that we can understand this is by understanding that when he is using the term saved here, he's not talking about the moment of your conversion. Yes, you are saved at the moment of your conversion, the moment you surrender yourself to Jesus in faith and belief. And if you have never done that, we plead with you, God's gift is before you. You need but reach out and take it and trust him in faith. But there's another sense in which your salvation is fully realized upon your death or upon the moment that Jesus returns, whichever comes first. That's the moment where the salvation you obtain becomes fully realized. And that's the salvation that Paul is talking about here. He is not talking about the moment you're converted. He's talking about the moment that you're fully realized. He's talking about the moment of your glorification. You are saved through sanctification. That brings you to the day of your glorification. Here's another way to think about it. If you're driving from northeast Ohio to Washington, D.C., you're probably going to take the Pennsylvania Turnpike, I-76, down to I-70. And as you head across Pennsylvania and into Maryland in about a five-hour drive, somewhere there in the middle of Pennsylvania, you are going to come to the Allegheny Mountain Tunnel. If you've ever driven that drive, the picture is vivid before you. Because there's a four-lane highway that lasts a little over a mile long that takes you right into and through the heart of the mountain, only to come out the other side. You can't continue to progress to your location, to your destination, unless you go through it. And it's a picturesque experience. When Paul says that you're saved through sanctification, he's saying that sanctification is the tunnel that you pass through on your way to your ultimate glorification. You go through it. 
that your ultimate salvation of being glorified in the Lord Jesus for all eternity only comes as you go through this particular process of by which God makes you holy. And this is the will of God for your life, for every single one of your lives who is called his children. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3 says this very plainly. You want to know what the will of God for your life is? This is the will of God, Paul says, your sanctification. And practically, this means a number of great things for you. Practically, it means that you should expect to grow and change in this life. Practically, it means that you should seek out growth and change in this life. That the Christian life is not one of simple passivity, but that you have the opportunity to participate in that growth and change, that sanctification. But it also means that part of the refining process of holiness in your life happens through the circumstances of this life. And some of those circumstances are difficult in their nature. It's like the athlete trains in pain in the gym. Just like the academic trains in a somewhat painful way in the study. So too, there's a training for the Christian life, but it only happens by engaging in the Christian life. And this training happens sometimes when life is all too hard or difficult. And you're tempted maybe even to think that God is absent or that he's abandoned you. Or that his gaze is somehow fixed upon something or someone else. And he doesn't see or know all of the struggle that you might be engaged in. But at that, at that moment, you remember something. You remember that he loves you. You remember that he chose you. You remember that this is evidenced in your life by your reception of the gospel. And then you start to have the framework to think through the difficulty you're going through, and you realize that God, even right now, through the midst of pain and suffering and affliction and difficulty or confusion or uncertainty, even right now is enacting his will for you. He's taking you through the tunnel of sanctification. He's making you more holy in a way that can only come at times through difficulty. And that's why Paul says that our present sufferings are incomparable to the glory that will be revealed in you. So you hold fast to God's choosing. You hold fast to the fact that salvation comes through sanctification. You hold fast to the calling of God, verse 14 in your life, that he calls to you and you hear and know and see and feel and respond to him. And you hold fast to the fact that in view for the Christian, there is a particular prize that verse 14 tells us which is the glory of Christ. Look at it with me. He says, to this, he called you through our gospel, and here's the result, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
That's the end result. That you get to participate in, gain, enjoy the glory of Christ applied to you. Now glory is often, the idea of glory of course is often associated with honor. An exalted honor. The exalted honor, this particular exalted honor that God gives to the Christian will be the greatest hope for you in a time when you feel a particular amount of dishonor in this life. To have the glory of Christ is the thing that we desire the most. And many places in scripture remind us again and again and again of this glory that is in view because it is, it is mysterious to us. It's seems distant to us. It doesn't seem like something we can grasp or reach out or take hold of. But be encouraged. 1 Thessalonians 2.12 Paul says, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Romans 5.2 Through him, being Jesus, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Romans 8, 17, if we are children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Colossians 1, 27, to them God chose to make known how great among you Among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. The riches of the glory of God mysteriously applied, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Friends, if you are waiting for the end of your life and a particular type of reward or a particular type of prize or a particular type of accolade or a particular type of material possession, let me encourage you, all of those things will in comparison to you obtaining the glory of Christ. Let that motivate you. Meditate on what that could possibly feel like. And then stand firm. And hold fast. Never lose your grip on the side of the mountain of the gospel of God. Find your footing there. Hold on with all of the seriousness and urgency and might that you have because the winds are trying to suck you off the side of that mountain all the way to your demise and even all the way to hell. But God chose you. He makes you holy in it. And the glory of Christ is revealed as your reward. And so he says, hold Fast. And that brings us to the close of this section. And a short word of praise to God, a doxology that recaps a lot of the themes of the first few chapters. 
You could spend every day in your devotions on these two verses this week. He says in verses 16 and 17, look at it with me. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. There's a phrase here that sticks out to me above all others. I wonder if you caught it. Jesus gives us comfort and good hope through grace. You can stand firm and hold fast in this life when your hope is in God's grace. You think about all the things that this life demands of you. You think about the anxiety you might feel. You think about the desires for accomplishment that you might have. You think about navigating the difficult, difficulty of a pandemic. You think about the patience needed to stay married with your spouse. You think about the resolve needed to be consistent with your children. You think about all of the things that God might demand upon you. And you fall woefully short. <laughs> and you have no idea how you're going to do it. But my friends, you can hold fast if your hope is not in yourself. But if your hope is in God's grace. Grace is just very simply the favor of God that's given to you even though you haven't earned it and even though you don't deserve it. That this grace permeates every single one of these aspects that God tells us to hold on to. That grace permeates the fact that God chooses us, that he calls us, that he gives us the ability to believe the truth, that he sanctifies us, and that he gives us the glory of Jesus someday. This has all happened simply by God's grace. It happens through grace. Grace that the whole work of God happens in the life of the Christian. And that gives you great comfort. And you can place your hope there. Because it's grace that is unwavering and unfailing in its nature. Lest you be tempted to think that you need to be good enough to approach God. And that you're going through life, as I've heard again and again, and you're just waiting to get a couple more things, a couple more pieces in place. And then you'll start to take a relationship with God seriously. Then you'll feel good enough to approach him again. But my friends, your hope is not in you. <laughs> take comfort and have good hope. Because God's election is by grace. Lest you be tempted to think or to believe that your spiritual seeking independent of God's calling is what will help you come to a knowledge of the truth. Have good hope because God calls you by grace. Lest you be tempted to think that your German genes 
or your Italian genes or your Asian genes or your African genes are strong enough to see you through the difficulties of life and lead you to ultimate strength. Remember that your hope is not in you. Have good hope. God sanctifies you by his grace. You can stand firm and hold fast when your hope is in God's grace. And lest you think that your family name, your education, your skill set, or your wealth is enough of an equipping or a cushion for you. That you will be a good enough person on the last day to make it into heaven on your own merits. That you're a better person than you are a bad person. Remember, friends, that your hope is not in you. It's in Jesus. And so have good hope. Because God's promise to give you the glory of Jesus is applied to you only by grace. It's free. You don't deserve it. You haven't earned it. And it's his loving gift to you. So hold fast to that grace. You know, in the mid-1800s, there was a minister named Harry Morehouse who often helped Dwight Moody in his evangelistic campaigns. And one morning as he was walking through the street of the city that he was in, he witnessed a small tragedy. As a little boy, no more than five or six years old, came bounding out of the milk store, carrying a ceramic uh, pitcher that he had just had filled with milk. And as he was going on his way toward his house, the boy tripped and fell. The pitcher shattered on the ground, and the covered was side was the, the, the sidewalk was covered in this milk that was now moving across the street. And the boy let out a terrible wail. Morehouse went over to him to ensure that he was okay. And there was no physical harm to the boy. But the pitcher had broken into a number of pieces. And the boy was wailing uncontrollably saying, my mama's going to whip me. My mama's going to whip me. And Morehouse put his hand on the boy's shoulder. And he said, well, son, let's see if we can put the carafe back together. And they sat there on the sidewalk, trying to put the pieces of the pitcher back into place. After all, the boy had seen crockery that had been glued back together before. And they would get part of the way, and they would fail. And the boy would let out a loud wail and start crying again. And the minister would comfort him. And they would start putting it back together again and they would fail. And the boy would let out a terrible wail again. And finally, after a couple of different attempts, they got the whole thing back together again. And as the boy went to reach for the handle to lift it back up, of course you know what happened. The whole thing fell apart again into pieces. And now uncontrollably weeping, the child sat on the sidewalk in a puddle of milk with his pitcher broken into many pieces. And Morehouse picked him up. He put him on his shoulder. 
He walked him down the street to the local crockery store where he bought the boy a new pitcher. They walked across the street back to the milk store where it was washed out and filled again with milk, the boy's errand for the day. And with the boy on, in one arm and the pitcher of milk in the other arm, he followed the lad's directions all the way back to the front steps of his home. And he gently put him down on the front steps. And he carefully handed him the pitcher of milk. And he said, is your mama going to whip you now? And the boy said, no. Because this is a much better pitcher than we had before. Whether you accept the fact or not, the pitcher of your life and its milk were once spilled beyond regathering. You may have spent much time trying to put the pieces of that pitcher back together, but God eventually assured you that you were broken beyond repair. When we were like this, broken and hopeless, in despair of our lost soul and our crashed hopes, that's when the Lord Jesus intervened to save us. He may have to watch our efforts to try to put the pieces back together for a little while until we come to the place where we believe beyond a question that's impossible for us to repair our lives in such a way that would ever satisfy the holiness of God. And it is then that he picks us up. He carries us in his arms. He purchases for us an entirely new nature, an entirely new life that he imparts to us on the basis of his loving kindness and his tender mercies. It's not because there is good in us, but it was because there is grace in him. Friends, you can hold fast. No matter what you're experiencing right now, the good times and the bad, the ups and the downs, you can hold fast when your hope is in God's grace. He chose you. He called you. He sanctifies you. He allows you to believe the truth. And he promises you the glories of Christ. Now that is an encouragement that helps you through the most difficult of times and gives you resolve for the days that are ahead. So be so encouraged. Let's pray. Father, the action of you is beyond measure. The grace that you bestow is beyond compare. And the truths of how they are applied to us, though mysterious to us in many ways, give us a framework and a vision for the days that are current, the days that are ahead, and the time of eternity. So help us, God. Help us right now to reassure, to stand firm, to find our hand in the cleft of the mountain of the gospel of God. And to never, ever, ever let it go. For the sake of 
our good and for your glory. Amen.